Hello, and welcome to the Focus on the Patient podcast, where we explore standards of excellence in healthcare, particularly focused in the cancer setting. So with me today, we have Brad Power from Cancer Hacker Lab. Welcome, Brad, and thank you for being our very first guest on our podcast. I'm honored. (laughs) As as are we. So before we begin, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a process innovation consultant by background. Um, I am a cancer survivor by what stuff happens, right? (laughs) I was diagnosed (laughs) with uh, lymphoma three years ago, went through a course of chemo and decided to focus my uh, consulting work and my research and writing around how to accelerate cancer treatment innovation, focusing from the patient's point of view. Amazing. So you're really able to take that kind of background, so to speak, and, and apply it in the, in, on your personal uh, kind of context. Incredible. Yeah, yeah I, I wanted to do things that people aren't already doing. So let's say there are lots of smart people that are already making clinical trials better and more accessible, or there are other people that are discovering great new therapies. But the opening that I saw that was different is that patients, particularly those who have very complex decisions to make, have a pretty difficult time figuring that out because you get diagnosed out of the blue. You have no background in this. You're not a, a research oncologist or somebody, you know, with an MD or a PhD. So it's a tough road to kind of figure out what's what you should do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and um we'll we'll probably get into it, but I'm just gonna put a little flag in there. If uh if we don't, I'm gonna ask you a little bit more about you know, kind of your personal journey and how you were able to take kind of your experience and, and, you know, perhaps uh, get over that learning curve in a way that kind of worked for you. Cause I think that's a, that's a really fascinating aspect of your, of your personal journey. Um, but before we get there, let, let's talk a little bit about the opportunity and for the listeners out there, what we're going to be able to do uh, in this episode is really highlight um, from, you know, Brad's really perspective, what, what are the opportunities out there for some healthcare disruption? We'll highlight um, his kind of genesis of Cancer Hacker Lab, what some of the learnings are to date, and finally a call to action. Um, so does that sound good, Brent? Sounds great. All right. So let's get into the opportunity here. So healthcare is unique. Uh, there's a lot of different facets, difficult decisions. There's a lot of different players too, right? We've got institutions and biopharma and you said clinical trial recruitment, patient advocacy organizations, payers, et cetera. So where in your mind is some of the greatest opportunities? Well, the patient's point of view is the one that I'm, that's the soapbox I'm standing on. So that's, that's my pulpit. And um, it, it, it pretty quickly becomes, you become like a social justice warrior. You see a lot of inequities in the system and then you want to right those wrongs. And I would say, I'll use strong language just to make the point, but I would say that the medical industrial complex we have in the United States is corrupt. And it's corrupt in the meaning that there are disincentives that are causing different players in that system to do that are not in the best interest of the customer equals the patient. Um, And so they're not focused on best patient outcomes. They should be. So the the measure for everyone should be best patient outcomes, but it's not the case. And so the opening that I see is things that are services that are truly aligned around best patient outcomes. And that a lot comes back to the, 
the payers and the insurance system, which is not always oriented to best patient outcomes. No, that's that's fascinating. And and if you don't mind, I'd love to dig a little bit deeper there. So you talk about um, you know, your 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 kind of point of view and the context of incorporating a patient's view into course of care uh, and tying that to patient outcomes. And I know that there's you know, a lot of focus around patient-reported outcomes, patient-reported performance measures. So can you, do you mind just highlighting kind of in your words how you see that synergy between incorporating a patient's point of view and patient outcomes? Well, for me, it's more, rather than patient-reported outcomes, it's more the patient who's trying to navigate to their best treatment. So if, you're, if you've been diagnosed with a disease like cancer, and you're trying to figure out amongst the either too many options, so it's a complex decision, or too few options, because you've gotten, the, you know, in the lottery, you've gotten the, the diagnosis that has few, you have a rare cancer, or you have something for which there are no treatments. Just navigating through that, coming up the learning curve and navigating through that is, is a huge challenge for people that don't have that background. And then I always say that more than half of the people uh, probably are in denial. I mean, they're probably running away from their di- diagnosis. They, they, they either don't want to deal with it, want to lead their life. They've got too many other pressing things. They feel ill-equipped to deal with it. Whatever they are, the vast majority of, of people want to have next to nothing to do with their diagnosis. Yeah, that's, that's very true. And I would actually, um, you, you talked about, you know, people may be in denial. They still have, you know, lives to live. Can't, a cancer diagnosis is just one aspect of the daily, you know, kind of considerations of, of living. Um, when we talk about kind of establishing or improving trust in the system, um, would love to just understand kind of your, your thoughts around that, recognizing that, um, you know, people may be in denial. They may not have. Uh, trust in the system, they get this diagnosis. How how can we start to you know more systematically improve that trust? That's that's a deeper question than I may have you know the the expertise to respond to. Trust is an important. We're back from my days in consulting. Trust comes from multiple repetitions where an what someone said they were going to do actually happens. So trust is ruined. This would be as a parent with my kids. If you like mess up on something, you got to do be right 10 times to overcome when you do something wrong. So trust is a hard thing. um, And it's fragile. And how we, you know, what we believe and how we behave is influenced a lot by culture and culture is defined a lot by people who are around us. You know, so if you're, you know, like with Ravel, I know you've, you've focused on, uh, let's say disadvantaged people who may have been treated badly in the past by the healthcare system. That's part of it. And then whether your friends and the people, you know, um, how they behave around a diagnosis that influences what you're going to do. So again, those are, very deep uh, human things that I, I can't contribute to much more than anyone else. No, thank you, thank you. And that, that, that I think it's a it's an important aspect of, of um, 
you know, how we think about the, the opportunity here. Um, so tell us a little bit about Cancer uh, Hacker Lab. So what is it? How did you start it? And where, where do you see it going? Okay, so it, it, this might answer the original uh, question teed up is like, how did I get here? Um, so when I was diagnosed, um, at the time I was a consultant and I wrote articles for the Harvard Business Review. And so I thought, I know something about being analytical and figuring out how to do stuff. And then maybe I could write articles and share it with people. So I could sort of blaze a trail, figure out how to navigate through something and then share it with other people. And so I identified what I call 10 jobs to be done. This is a very consultant-y thing. And so those could be like, from my point of view, the first thing I wanted to know, who else has this diagnosis? Can I connect with them? Can I have a social community with them? I was being treated. There were a bunch of my friends who wanted to know about what my status was. So were there software services that allowed me to communicate with a set of people that would be interested in me? Um, maybe I wanted to get a, a uh, sequencing of my uh, tumor tissue. What are this? Who are the service providers to do that? How would I choose them? Um, I want a second opinion. How would I get a second opinion? Where would I go? What are the options for getting second opinions? I want to store my health data for analysis, and so on. And that, like I came up with ten of these, and in each one I identified who are the service providers in that space, and then I tried to do some work and I wrote some articles about how you would figure out which ones. Um, you might want to choose for different reasons. Your purpose might be different. It's not like one's always the best. Then um, I was, uh, I thought I was going to do a podcast. I recorded my podcast, didn't do that. Um, but the real um, kind of turning point for me was back in December when my friend Bryce Olson, who had metastatic prostate cancer, said, Brad, I think I've hit a wall. We've basically treated all the pathways repeatedly that I know that I have mutations for, and I'm not sure it's going to work. And, and so I said, well, we could run a hackathon for you. And he said, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do that. And so can, I, can I cut you there, right? Just for the listeners who might not know what a hackathon is, do you mind explaining what that is in a professional term and then maybe how you uh, adapted it? Yeah, so hackathons are well-known amongst software developers and programmers. Uh, it's the idea you come together for 24 hours or an evening or a weekend or something, and you go code, and you code to your heart's content on something. It's usually around a problem or something. And I had heard that there were hackathons that had been done for patients some years before. So I was aware that this had been done. And so when Bryce said yes, I went out and searched for the people that had done that. And there were some people like Pete Kane at Research to the People and Ben Busby who'd run a bunch of these hackathons. And their hackathons pre-pandemic was like a weekend where you get a bunch of people together with a patient and their data, and then you try and figure out, hack, um, what's the best thing for them to do? What, what's the disease they have? What's the driving mutation? And what should they do about it? And there would be different teams, in a way, competing um, to figure out what the best answer was. And so it was all about physical co-location. These were often in places like one was held at Genentech or one was held at Stanford, that kind of place. Um, so, but it was the pandemic and I, I, did, I didn't think a physical, I wouldn't have designed a physical model anyway. Like I thought, I would have thought that it, 
a learning community brought together around a patient and their problem shouldn't be confined in time or space. So you want a global people to input to it and you want it to run over, you know, a matter of weeks to uh, figure out. So we basically borrowed the some of the hackathon ideas that had been for physical, you know, get-togethers and then turned them online. Fascinating. And so when when did this start for you? So one of the first things is we we're going to have this launch. And Bryce says, well, it, and he's at Intel. He says, well, when we're at Intel, when we have a launch, we, you know, we get all these things lined up and we have press releases. And it was like, no, we're in a rush. This is urgent. We can't do all that stuff because it was before Christmas. And it was like, well, we should probably do this in early January because you wouldn't want to do it during the Christmas season. No, we're, we did it. So we did it the week before Christmas. We had our launch event in the week before Christmas, which is a crazy thing to do if you're trying to run a business, but it's it's the thing you do if you're in a hurry. Right. So we uh, we launched it and uh, it was before Christmas. We ran that one until um, early March. That's amazing. So do you mind kind of uh, breaking down the, the structure? So how do you do it? Who are the players? Um, what were some of the findings? Yeah, um, so Bryce brought with him Bryce Olson, a very famous metastatic prostate cancer patient, brought with him a community of people that he knew um, who were the experts in the field. And so he would have a Zoom meeting. You can, you know, Zoom meetings were, you know, common in the, uh, as we're having right now and, and in the, and in the um, pandemic. And uh, so we could have a Zoom meeting and we could invite a bunch of people to it. And then we could have a conversation. And then I kind of, the two metaphors I use are, improv theater and herding cats. So we're, you know, you're, you're trying to steer a conversation in a direction and it's improv theater, meaning that like whatever comes up and emerges from the audience is sort of what you talk about. So it had about that much structure. Looking back on it now, I can say that there are three key components that make the, the system work. The first is you're trying to come up with diagnostics and testing. Uh, you want to get more data about the patient. And so a lot of the participants that Bryce brought with him, he brought about a, about 10 or 12 kind of a who's who of diagnostic companies. Uh, Foundation Medicine and Tempest are the ones that people know the best, but then a bunch of other smaller startups that are that were very, very smart. And so the first thing is, you know, figuring out the testing, the data, making the data available to the community. That's number one. Number two is uh, what are the treatment options? And so we kept a running list of what the list of possible treatments are. And initially you think there are none, like in Bryce's case, like he's tried everything. And then lo and behold, you start to find other things that he hasn't heard of. And then the third part is the experts. It's the people who you're going to have weigh the different options and then decide which one's the best one for the next treatment. So those are, those are the three ingredients that... Uh, came together in that hackathon and it had become kind of the standard in the two other hackathons we were running. And so you, you truly created a system surrounding a patient then? Yeah, no, that's, this is, that's, you know, I guess it may be a blinding glimpse of the obvious, but this is all around optimizing for the patient. Everybody comes together to come up with the best next treatment for that patient. And you were able to do that in a few short months then? 
Yeah, in Bryce's case, his PSA started spiking, so we had to accelerate it. And uh, I think we, you know, we, we had started out thinking that it would take a couple few months, and it ended up we had to do it in like six to nine weeks. Um, and, and I think we were from that start in December until his uh, virtual molecular tumor board was probably six weeks. Wow. And what was some of the the feedback from, you know, from Bryce, from, from the parties that participated? Yeah. Well, you can, um, you can watch a video of Bryce giving that feedback on the cancer hacker lab website, but um, from my conversations with him, it was um, largely the virtual molecular tumor board was what he felt was where the most valuable value came in. He would, he was also very impressed that in addition to all the people that he knew, we attracted, um, a bunch of people, um, largely that I invited. So I, I spent the, I've spent the last three years, um, as you know, going to conferences, uh, reading articles, uh, you know, just social networking. And whenever I find anybody interesting, I connect with them on LinkedIn. Most of the time they accept most of the time, at least to a call. And most of the time I sort of figure out how they fit. And so, um, I was able to bring a bunch of people to the conversation as well, people that Bryce didn't know. And Bry- Bryce was very well connected. Um, so uh, that's that's what I think he would say it, uh, that, that, I, I, that, I, that I recall is one, the virtual molecular tumor board was extremely valuable and the, um, the number the people that showed up and, and participated. I, I've had a, a friend afterwards say, Brad, you've solved the biggest um, problem. And that's convening the group. Right. It's it's quite impressive, actually, Brad, that from those kind of disparate backgrounds that you were able to convene that group. And, and essentially just simply by creating that platform um, in, in which a number of different, you know, entities, people, et cetera, can rally together, um, debate, right, uh, take a very evidence-based approach and determine next steps. Um, it's it's absolutely applaudable. And so, um, how many how many hackathons have you done since Bryce? Oh, there are two underway now. One is for Linnea Olson, a non-small cell lung cancer patient with ALK positive, and uh, Casey Altman, who has a rare. She's a young woman, twenty five years old, with a rare sarcoma. Wow! How how incredible. So um, we'll go ahead and, and actually link to the Cancer Hacker Lab uh, at the end of this podcast as well to make sure that those who are listening are able to uh, view Bryce's uh, testimonial in addition to understand a little bit more about the opportunities there. Um, you highlighted a little bit, but the next piece that we wanted to cover was just you know learning. So uh, some of your bright spots, some of your blind spots. I'm curious, you know, with Brad being the first one, there's always some fine tuning. As you being our first podcast, you know, guest, there'll be some fine tuning and and learnings that we get to kind of deploy over time. Um, is there any piece around you know what we call bright spots or blind spots that you'd like to highlight? I would say um, because I'm a process improvement process innovation person. I mean, we, we've been learning throughout. Uh, there's so much that we learn. Um, and it's, and I, I'll give you two stories that just occurred. One that one occurred earlier and one that's just occurred. So one is, uh, we call it the issue is tissue. And one of the things, if you're trying to feed the diagnostic tests, okay, so you want more data. 
And whether it's Bryce or any of these patients, they say, you know, here are my veins, take as much blood as you want. I don't care. Liquid biopsy, knock yourself out. I will give you as many vials as you want. Go run your sequencing test, whatever. But when it comes to tissue, tumor tissue in particular, there's kind of a catch-22, which is they did this biopsy. It was a, you know, let's say a core needle biopsy. So you imagine this little, you know, small little bit of tissue. And then you have to husband it. You have to allocate it to which test. And so managing that tissue has emerged as a huge issue. In Bryce's case, it was, sorry, they used my original, you know, tissue and I don't have any new because every time anything metastasized shows up, they irradiate the heck out of it. I don't have any tissue. So if you want tissue, you can't have any. And then with Linnea, we got a, uh, she, she got a new biopsy. So she got new tissue. And then we, we had this whole table laid out with prioritization, what have you. And then <clears throat> the test was just run and, and it somehow the tissue wasn't good enough or didn't work with the lab. And it came back, they could do the DNA sequencing, but they couldn't do the RNA sequencing. You know, so you have those things. So just this whole issue of tissue management was un unknown to me, yep. but it's the feedstock for everything that follows. It's the feedstock for the diagnostics and the diagnostics feed the, the recommended therapies. That makes complete sense. So it's really almost a, you know, just to break it down a bit of a supply chain issue in the context of limited resource and how it's most used and mm -hmm. recognizing that, um, you know, in that kind of sample management that there's, um, there's, there are points of risk, points of error. And so the question is, how can we have a coordinated effort to make sure that, um, you know, that tissue does not become an issue, so to speak. Yep. It makes, makes sense. Um, thank you. This was, this was really quite, quite fascinating. Um, what, what are your plans kind of for, for the future in the context of, is this open to, to anyone? Are you hyper-focused on rare diseases? What, how would you like to get the word out around Cancer Hacker Lab? Well, first of all, publicity I've learned is kind of the currency that we really want to feed into the system, whether it's the diagnostic companies offering their services for free, whether it's the um, you know, the oncologists, radiologists, pathologists who are providing their services for free. What they're really interested in is uh, collaborating with peers and other smart people. And maybe they can get written up in an article. You know, maybe yeah. they can, they could, there's uh, some we can publish. So publicity is, is, is really important to us. So I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and, and get this, get this word out. Um, I have two aspirations. Uh, this is, you know, it, uh, I'm a megalomaniac or something, you know, or maybe it's, it's a startup and we're, and we're a little bit naive, but, um, my, my goal is to, I call it the horizontal strategy and the vertical strategy. The horizontal strategy is let's take on additional cancers. So we've done prostate cancer, lung cancer, and rare pediatric cancers. What would be next? Colorectal cancer, breast cancer, and so on. Uh, we could we could go horizontally, find a, uh, a a first patient in each of those areas, run the hackathon process for them, and come up with the best answer for them. Similarly, on vertical, um, it's we've we've run the process for the first patient in that area, and so now we have the three key ingredients that I mentioned. 
We know who the experts are. We know what the treatment options are. We know what the tests are. So we can run more people through that process with already having that infrastructure and that knowledge in place. And so how can we scale from one patient in an area to find patients like that patient and scale it? So can we find two dozen people or a hundred people that we can run the same process for with all those other things in place and make it more accessible? Um, So running one of these is very expensive, although it's free to everyone, like everybody's free, but it's still very expensive in time. And so the ability to run this multiple times makes it much more widely accessible to everyone who fits the profile of someone who has a very complex decision to make who looks like that first patient through the process. That's right. No, that that makes sense. And you you were talking about a little bit of how it's um, um, it's expensive, but people are donating kind of their resources, their their time, um, and accessible. Um, is there any cost or charge to the actual patient in this process? Not the first people through, not so far. No, it's, yeah, it's it's um, it's a luxury. It's it's like we are pure. We we suffer from none of those misincentives. Let's say. It's, it's very much focused on the patient. And when you're free, like you just, everybody shows up when they do the right thing for that patient. So it's, yeah. it's very clean. Um, and, and, it, and it's a luxury. It's a nice place to be. When we think about scaling, however, and offering it to more people, that starts to feel more like a business. That's a service. And we're thinking of it as a startup. So I'll need to consult with you since you're an expert on, on, on startups. <laughs> Uh, but that's the way we're thinking about it is, um, uh, what is the business model? Um, and, and because of our, my, my belief in, in making sure that it's aligned with patient outcomes, my belief is that patients should pay and then maybe they get reimbursed by insurance or maybe they are of means, or maybe there's a GoFundMe, but it basically to maintain integrity in, in my view, um, it needs to be direct to patient and patient funded. So, but that's speculative at this point. We, we, we haven't done that. We're just trying to design it. Absolutely. Well, and I think that's the unique part of uh, being in healthcare is that there are a lot of different incentives, a lot of different uh, entities who are willing to pay. And, and uh, at the end of the day, how can we, you know, crack the nut, scale appropriately and, and be focused on and improve patient outcomes accordingly. So Amazing. Thank, thank you so much for being on the show, Brad. And it's been an absolute uh, treat to feature Cancer Hacker Labs, what, um, excuse me, Cancer Hacker Lab, what you're able to accomplish. Um, and Brad, just if anyone wants to learn more, what's the best way to reach you? Well, there is the Cancer Hacker Lab website. I'm on Twitter, though, not very active, at Bradford Power. Um, and then my email is bradfordpower at gmail.com. Excellent. Thank you. And before we sign off for good, are there any final remarks or a call to action that you would like to share? No, I think you've hit it pretty well. Um, I do believe that that, that sort of to summarize that this is the ultimate in patient-centered. I mean, a lot of people give lip service to patient-centered. This is the ultimate in patient-centered because everything is about what's best for that patient that, that we're trying to help. Um, and the other thing, just so that people kind of lock it in, this is kind of a, a Hail Mary. This is, uh, this is not for people who have just been diagnosed and there's a, a, a reasonable standard of care approach. 
And it's not even perhaps for people where there's an obvious clinical trial that they would fit into. This is for people who've exhausted the standard of care, exhausted clinical trials, or there, there was never anyone to start with. And so they've got a very difficult, complex situation. And the medical industrial complex may have said to them, there's nothing more we can do for you. Get your affairs in order. And this becomes a, kind of a, a last-ditch Hail Mary kind of attempt because what we're doing is research, reaching into the research labs and pulling down that latest research into, you know, and, and people who are working in labs on the latest technologies and the latest therapies and bringing that down to an individual patient and coming up with something that's incredibly novel and innovative uh, just for them. So it's in, it's in that zone of, of very complex decisions and kind of last ditch. Yep. And that's, that's a great analogy of just the, the Hail Mary, that, that hope string um, uh, approach and bravo for actually putting in the hard work to break down those, you know, functional, let's say institutional, sometimes, you know, really difficult silos, uh, to, you know, bring together a lot of entities and individuals from diverse backgrounds, uh, to truly focus on the patient. So, yeah, thank you. I, I do want, if I could just comment on that real quick. And, of course. And thanks. Um, I, in my consulting career, uh, we did a project for hip and knee replacements, and it had eight different entities that were involved from the moment that it gets diagnosed to the surgery and the visiting nurses and the therapy and the whole thing, eight, anesthesia, et cetera. And it was optimizing that patient experience across that whole thing. And everybody who was involved stepped up and did the right thing for the patient. It was like, whatever was best for the patient, everybody was going to do. And people in healthcare are unique. If we say that we need help for Bryce Olson or Linnea Olson or Casey Altman, people rise to the occasion. People go into healthcare because they want to help people. Yeah. And that is a powerful force that overcomes, can overcome a lot of the institutional distance. So I don't want to be just a Debbie Downer about the whole thing. That is what we are tapping into. And that's where the hope is that we can make a difference. I couldn't have said it better, Brad. I think that that completely resonates with me and I'm sure with a lot of our listeners as well. So um, I think for those of us that, that you know, are privileged enough to be in this space and work within healthcare, um, you're spot on and that it's an opportunity for us uh, to make the world, the world a better place for others, right? And so to give hope and to be able to help not only existing patients, but also future patients as well. So... Wonderful. Well, thank you for being our first guest and uh, looking forward to publishing. Thank you, Aubrey.